If you were not here last week, we are doing a short study in an obscure book in the Old Testament most people don't know, aren't very familiar with, but we're in the book of Haggai. So if you would turn your Bibles, make your way there. Now this has become, uh, as it generally does, anybody preaching, whatever book you're in, it becomes your favorite book. It's been become one of my favorite books, and I hope you are uh, enjoying it as much as I am. But there are some, so many vital lessons that we can learn from this little, often neglected book of the Old Testament. But let's read that first chapter again as we uh, will finish chapter 1 today. But I see in this chapter, chapter 1, one literary unit. And it's marked off by the date indicators. And I think it's one literary unit because if you look at the beginning and end, the date formula kind of forms a chiastic bookend on both ends. In the beginning of the chapter, it begins with the year, month, and then the day. And at the end of the chapter, it's in the reverse order, the day, the month, and the year. And so this chiastic Hebrew literary structure kind of bookends this section, and so I wanted to treat it as one section, because I think the author, Haggai, wanted us to consider all of this together. So let's read chapter 1 again, and we'll finish up this chapter today. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the soil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. 
This chapter is structured around three imperatives. Uh, In the first two paragraphs, the people's response. In the final paragraph is the result of Yahweh's blessing of His presence. And I've broken the text into four points to reflect this structure. And if you were here last week and you're taking notes, writing it down, last week I gave three points. I've actually decided to split that last point into two just to make more sense of the structure. But the the points that we're going to cover this morning, we covered the first one last week, assess your priorities. We're going to cover the other three today. Point number two, consider your trials. Point number three, change your ways. And lastly, receive your blessing. Assess your priorities, consider your trials, change your ways, receive your blessing. What we looked at last week really challenged all of us to assess our priorities in light of who God is. That is Yahweh of hosts, the holy majestic King who sits enthroned in heaven before the angels. And I think we were all implicated in Haggai's indictment against the people last week who busied themselves with their own households to the neglect of Yahweh as the main priority. This was made manifest in their day by neglecting to take the time and the energy and the resources to build the temple. Our misplaced priorities are manifest when we don't make time for spiritual things such as the worship, Lord's Day worship, on Sundays, spiritual disciplines. And Haggai, delivering the message for the High King of Heaven, he commanded the people to consider their ways. To think deeply about their patterns of life. The things that they regularly prioritize to the neglect of Yahweh their King. Honoring Him as King in the priority of their hearts. Consider your ways, He commanded them. That was the first imperative from verse 5, which provoked them and it provokes us to assess our priorities. That was point one. And the second, the same command repeated, but there is something else that Yahweh wanted the remnant to consider and by extension something He wants us to consider. And that is point two, consider your trials. Look at verses 5-7 to again. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The command to consider your ways, as we mentioned last week, is considering your pattern of life, your lifestyle, the way of your life, your priorities. But it also refers to considering the subsequent result of such a lifestyle, of having such priorities. Command to consider their wrong priorities and the connection between those wrong priorities and all the bad stuff that was happening to them. Verse 6 describes the result of wrong priorities. But it doesn't make the connection explicit yet. It leaves the connection to be considered in the mind of the listener. All the bad things that had been happening to them Sowing, but not harvesting. Eating, but never having their fill. They were to consider the connection between that and their sinful priorities. It says in verse 6, You have sown. This is followed by a series of six infinitives and two participles. This verse is packed with 
10 verbs, a lot of action happening in this verse. And yet the point is it all amounts to nothing. Nothing is produced. They're all lacking. He says you have sown, harvested little, eaten, but there's never enough. Drank, but not enough for drunkenness. Clothed, but still cold. When it comes to coinage, those who were the wage earners, their wages were like putting them into a bag that had holes bored in it. By the time they got it home, it was worth less than when they got it. And so Yahweh, through Haggai, his messenger, he commands the people to consider their ways. Think deeply about how you have failed to prioritize the building of my house and the connection between all the bad stuff that's happening to you. Think about those two things. At this point, it's only implying a connection, but Yahweh doesn't want to leave it to the listener to make that connection all on their own. Many of them would probably rationalize it away as they had rationalized their sin. It makes this connection explicit in verse 9. If you look down at verse 9, it says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because it's my house that lies and ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called a drought on the land, because you have neglected my house, the Lord says. They looked for much. They anticipated much in the harvest. But it came to little. And then Yahweh is, says, I blew it away. So Yahweh, He was disciplining the Jews, afflicting the Jews because of their sinful priorities, their misplaced priorities, because of the idolatry of their own houses and prioritizing them above His house. And Yahweh's judgment upon them was severe. Verse 11 says He called for a drought, His active discipline upon His people for their actions. But it was so severe that there wasn't even any dew. He withheld even the dew. And this is important, especially considering the time of year. We know what time of year it was. It was in August. And there was generally very little rain in August and September in uh, Jerusalem anyway. And so what kept the plants alive during this time with very little moisture coming from the heavens was the dew. The dew coming down each night would keep the plants from wilting in the heat. And so the dew, it was a matter of life and death for their parched vegetation. So Yahweh, He had even withheld the dew, which resulted in the ground withholding its produce from them. But Yahweh, He wanted His people to consider, and then He made this connection explicit. He wanted them to know that He was disciplining them for their sin. And this was pretty holistic. This was a holistic discipline. It says the land and the hills. The land and the hills constitute the two kinds of land that were uh, farmed. The land was where the grain grew, the fields. And the hills were where the olive trees and the grapes were grown. So it's holistic. Every type of land He withheld the produce from. Both of these things are also harvested at different times in the year. So it wasn't just a particular time of year. It was holistically throughout the year. Yahweh had afflicted the land for quite some time and every crop was affected. So much so that it frustrated the labor of the men and the beasts. 
The men and the beasts, they never accomplished what they set out to do. The fields were hard due to a lack of rain, and that made life more difficult, trying to work the parched land, which wearied the people and the animals even more. Being tired, as you know, makes for a less productive day. Less got accomplished. Even less was produced because they were wearied. It was this vicious cycle. They tried to work harder, but that was came to nothing. Yahweh was just frustrating their efforts. So Yahweh says, consider your ways. The connection between these two things. I am disciplining you for your sin. Yahweh wanted them to consider their ways and how their idolatrous actions, their idolatrous priorities resulted in discipline. All the bad stuff that had been happening to them, it was the Lord's discipline on them. Now we have to stop right here and make some important qualifications before we move on to application. Because if we take what it says right here and we jump directly into application, we might make the same mistake that one of Job's friends did and just come to the conclusion that if bad stuff happens to you, it's because you are displeasing the Lord. In the book of Job, his friend uh, professed this. He told Job this. But Job professed that he was blameless and he was before God. God said he's blameless before me. Not sinless, but walking in righteousness before him. And one of Job's friends said, well, if you're really blameless before God, God wouldn't let any of this bad stuff happen to you. But all this bad stuff is happening to you because there's some sin in your life. And God made it abundantly clear that all three of Job's friends were speaking lies to him. What they spoke about God was not accurate. And so this view, if something bad is happening to you, is because God's not happy with you. That's falling off the ditch of the right path. It's also falling off the ditch on the other side. If you say, well, if life is going good, then God must be happy with you. Bad things happen to everyone because Adam sinned and we live in a sin-cursed world. And even if we are blameless as Job was in the way that we live our lives, we will still endure trials and bad things will still happen to us. No matter how righteous we are, our family members are going to die. Our friends are going to die as they age, as the effects of the curse take their toll. We also know from New Testament Revelation that the Lord brings trials into our lives to refine us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. We read from Hebrews 12 earlier, but Romans 5, 1-5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So not everything bad that happens is because we have sinned. But here, Yahweh makes sure to Tell the people of Israel that there's a connection between trials and sinful priorities. Here, Yahweh is disciplining them as His covenant people as He promised that He would. And what Yahweh reveals to the people here should have really been obvious to them. Yahweh told them that this exact thing would happen. 
And there are many places that we could go, but flip back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11 just briefly. God warned the people over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and He really set two options before them. Life or death, cursing or blessing. And He told them it was their choice. If they obeyed, that they would be blessed by Him, and they would be fruitful in the land, but if they disobeyed, He would send a curse. And so when the Lord told the Israelites to consider this, they should have made the connection pretty quickly. Yahweh was disciplining them as His people. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, I'm going to read 13 through 17, and then I'm going to skip down just for for the sake of time. But Deuteronomy 11 verse 13 says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grains and your wine and your oil. Same three things mentioned in Haggai. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Then skip down to verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandment of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you may have not known. So, all throughout, and this is just one instance, there's several other passages, Deuteronomy 27, 28, Leviticus 26, lays out these same curses for the people of Israel. Yahweh was disciplining His people, which was, as we already know, a blessing because it means they, they were, He still considered them His people, His children, as He promised. And so the people should have been able to make this connection pretty easily. But what this passage in Deuteronomy and the rest of Scripture teaches It's not that Yahweh changes His disposition towards people. It isn't that Yahweh was happy with Israel one moment and angry with them the next. Yahweh, the great I Am, is unchanging. He is impassable. What is actually happening here is Yahweh has set two options before them. Blessing and cursing. When Israel obeys, they are in the way of blessing, walking in the path of blessing. And the rain will come down upon them to flourish them. But when they disobey, they've left the path of blessing and they've started to walk in the path of cursing. Where there is no rain to cause them to flourish. It's dry and parched where nothing grows. It's a place of death. And it isn't that Yahweh changed. He told them, if you walk over here in the path of blessing and life, I will bless you. But if you walk over here, this is the path of drought and famine and death. And this should have been obvious for them. These things, the grain, the wine, and the oil, what 
Haggai had told them, it should have been obvious to them the connection between their sin and the trials that they had been going through. But for us, though, we don't have these same promises. In fact, we have quite opposing promises from Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ has not promised materialistic blessings in life. Jesus Christ has not promised a materially prosperous life, physical blessings, but He has promised us that we will endure many trials and sufferings as His followers, as His disciples. He promised that the world would hate us and that the Gospel would even divide our families and set one another against each other. Would set believers against unbelievers, unbelievers against believers. And so for us as New Testament believers, we can't know for sure if the bad things that happen to us are because of our sin or if God is just trying to refine us and sanctify us. But when trials do come into our lives, we should heed this and consider if it is a discipline for our sin. We should examine our hearts and our ways. But Christ has promised hardship if you follow Him. Even if you are obedient and growing in your sanctification, repenting of every sin that comes to your mind, you will still endure hardship and trial. But, if you are going through trials, you ought to consider your ways. Yahweh wants us to understand that there can be a direct relation between our trials and our sinful priorities. And Yahweh wanted Israel to understand the direct link between their wrong priorities and a lack of fruit being produced. And I think it's an appropriate application for us as New Testament believers to consider the same thing. To consider our sinful priorities and the lack of spiritual fruit in our lives. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot holding on to sinful priorities? The Jews, they were killing themselves trying to grow stuff without any water, trying to survive on the land with very little water. And their sinful priorities led to no water from the Lord to help them, which made things even more difficult. Are your sinful, idolatrous priorities causing God to frustrate all of your labor so that you make no progress? Are you sabotaging your sanctification by having wrong priorities? And let me give you a couple examples of what I mean here. Last week we talked about prioritizing the the Lord's Day worship, prioritizing spiritual disciplines. I mean, how many of you men, you want to reflect the character found in Titus and Timothy for the qualifications of an elder? That's what we should all aspire to the kind of character that all of you men should aspire to. And how many of you wives and young ladies want to reflect the godly character of the Proverbs 31 woman? We all want to be more Christ-like. And yet we shoot ourselves in the foot when we prioritize other things. Ideally, we want that. We want to be growing in Christ. We want to be producing the fruit of the Spirit. But our sinful priorities of comfort, entertainment, even good priorities of teaching our kids keep us from the Lord's Day or reading of Scripture and prayer. And then when we become dissatisfied, do we turn to God to seek satisfaction and fulfillment in Him? 
No, we try to consume more entertainment. We seek for comfort somewhere else. It's this vicious cycle. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot. We're sabotaging our own sanctification. We need to stop and consider the trials. The lack of fruit. The dissatisfaction is because we have wrong priorities and continuing to chase after wrong priorities is only shooting ourselves in the foot. It's only going to make things worse. We need to recognize that we need to change our ways and consider the glory of Yahweh first. And so that leads us to our third point. Change your ways. Don't keep shooting yourself in the foot. Don't keep sabotaging your sanctification. Don't keep walking in the way of cursing, wondering why life is so hard. Repent. Obey Yahweh and walk in the way of blessing. Look at verse 8. This is where we find the command. If you're still in Deuteronomy, flipping your Bibles back to Haggai. Verse 8 says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. There are technically two commands, two imperatives in verse 8. Go up and build are both in the imperative form. But the whole sentence is a series of verbs leading to the building of the house. So there's really one idea here. The people are called to change from their complacency and neglect of Yahweh's priorities, and they are to go up to get what they need and to build the Lord's house instead of busying themselves with their own households. This is what repentance looked like for these people. The word repentance isn't used, but this is what it looks like. Repenting for them looked like going up and building the temple. So it isn't enough to consider your ways, to think about all your wrong priorities. You are commanded to assess them and where deficient, you must then change. You must repent. And if you do not, you remain under the judgment of Yahweh and in the way of cursing and death where God is just going to frustrate all of your actions. So Yahweh, He commands them to repent, to change their ways, to go up and build His house. He says, and when you do that, I may take pleasure in it. That is, take pleasure in the house, but also the people's actions as they repent and seek Yahweh first. But the implication of this phrase is that Yahweh has not been pleased or is not currently pleased as you would imagine, by the ruins of his house, which is a reflection of the priorities of the people. The ruins of the temple reflected the people's hearts. Their spiritual priorities were in ruin, and it wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And it's important to note at this point that the people, they had been offering sacrifices to Yahweh and bringing offerings to him out of the little bit that they had. Look at verse 9 again. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. So that reference, you looked for much, is a reference to the expectation of the people for the harvest. They expected much, but it came to little. Their harvests were not what they expected, and yet the text says, when you brought it home. This is not a reference to their own homes. 
This is a reference to the temple. Six times in the book of Haggai, the word for home or house is used, and each time it is used, it's used more than six times, but the six times it's used with the article, the word the in Hebrew, definite article, it's talking about Yahweh's house or temple. So here it's a reference to the temple. When it says that they brought from their pathetic harvest, to the house, it's a reference to the fact that they brought offerings to Yahweh of the little that they got in the harvest. I mean, that's a good thing. They were bringing something. They were getting very little, and yet they were still bringing some to the Lord. Wouldn't he be pleased with that? We read last week in Ezra chapter 3 that when they got there, the first thing they did was they set up the altar so that they could do the sacrifices, and they began practicing all the sacrifices according to the law of Moses. So they were performing that aspect of worship. They were sacrificing and giving to Yahweh all these years, even out of the little bit that they got. But was Yahweh pleased with their sacrifices? Was He pleased with their offerings? No. It says in Haggai 1.9, at the end of that verse, He says, I blew it away. Not the end of the verse, but the middle of the verse. I blew it away. This is an anthropomorphism. It depicts God's near presence with a people. He's there in the midst. He's seeing their hardship, their distress. He was right there watching everything. Close enough to blow their offerings away when they came to offer them. He was displeased with them. He blew them away. Because Yahweh does not desire sacrifice. He desires a humble and contrite heart. Yahweh desired the people to have Him as their God instead of their homes being their God. The people, they were performing their religious duties. They were going through many of the right motions. But Yahweh was not first in their heart. And this is instructive for all of us. God isn't pleased if you are outwardly serving in every area of church, hours and hours a week even, giving to Him even out of the little that you have, if he does not occupy the highest seat of affections in your heart. He is pleased with your service when it is because you love him more than anything else. So don't think God is pleased with you merely because you perform some appropriate acts of worship. Those actions, done not in faith, not in devotion to God, They're repugnant to him and he blows them away to get them out of his sight. Yahweh told them to change their ways. To build the temple. To put him at the highest seat of affections in their heart. And then he would be pleased and glorified. And this also, the implication is that Yahweh is not glorified among them as his house sits in ruins. Did the ruins, as I talked about last week, as Haggai is standing there proclaiming to the people, did the ruins that lay behind him as he's speaking, did those ruins reflect God's character accurately? Is Yahweh a God of disorder and ruin? Did those ruins magnify God as holy and God as a God of excellence and order? No. Yahweh would be glorified when He had a house that represented His character well. One of beauty, symmetry, excellence, good order, functional and according to His design. 
God would be glorified when the house was done, but also as the people honored Him as God in their hearts and went to work. The temple was merely an outward reflection of the people's priorities in their hearts. But God would be glorified with that physical temple built. The people, they were concerned with setting up the altar, worshiping in accordance with the law of Moses. But perhaps they thought that that, you know, as the center of worship had the altar there, that the function of the temple was sufficient. They had the altar to make sacrifices at. I mean, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anyway to put in the temple, so maybe they thought, what's the point? What's the function if we don't have the Ark? It wouldn't benefit them and, or enhance their worship, they didn't think. It's all possibilities. Maybe they thought it would not reflect their worship in a positive way, so it wouldn't be worth the effort or the cost to rebuild the temple. But the temple was a necessary symbol of Yahweh's glory. Yahweh did not look majestic before the people. He did not look like the glorious king of the universe if his earthly temple that represented his glory sat in ruins. The earthly temple represented Yahweh's kingdom on earth. It was a symbol of his presence among the people. One commentator says the continuance of the ancient covenant or of the kingdom of God in Israel was bound up with the temple. So the people neglecting to build the temple, it implied that they weren't really concerned for Yahweh to dwell among them as he had in the past. It indicates that they are still trying to do it without him. They were self-centered. They were self-sufficient. And they were not concerned for God or his glory. They were not concerned for his presence among them. So Yahweh called them to repent but not primarily to avoid the curse that they had been living under. They were not to repent to have rain come down upon them, but they were to repent in order that He might be pleased and that He might be glorified. So repent, not to avoid consequences, but because God is glorified in it and will be pleased by it. And the result may be a reversal of fortunes, but that isn't the purpose. You repent and believe because God is glorious and He is worthy to be worshipped. And the result is escaping punishment. But the primary purpose and motivation for repentance ought to be the right motivation is pleasing God and glorifying Him. Pray that you would repent and please God, not that you would just escape the bad situations of life. The pleasure and glory of Yahweh is the only sufficient motivator. Just avoiding consequences is not a sufficient motivator to keep you on the right path. It might deter you from certain things, but it is not going to keep you on the right path for very long. So we need to consider our ways and repent, change. Maybe we've been going through some religious motions, serving here and there and everywhere, but Yahweh doesn't occupy the primary seat of our affections. We do it because it makes us feel good, self-righteous. We think we're doing pretty good, acting righteous. But in reality, we are, as the Jews 
We're here self-righteous, self-centered, and self-sufficient. Dear friend, if that's you, God is not pleased with your offering. He blows it away as He did these people. You must repent, change your ways, and set at the center of your affections the glorious God of the universe. Bow the knee to Him as Lord and be concerned for His glory first upon the earth. And then live in light of that. Outwardly, many actions look the same. But it's about the heart. Are you living with the motivation? Are you serving with the motivation to glorify Yahweh above yourself? Or are you looking to look good before people? Maybe you're just going through the religious motions. It's what we've always done. I've always come to church. Repent and put Yahweh on His throne in your heart. If you do not, if you're a believer, maybe you're just in pride and you've elevated yourself in your own mind, He will discipline you until you repent. But if you're not a believer, one day you will stand before Him. And as we read in Hebrews 12, He is a consuming fire and He will blow you away to an eternal judgment of fire. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that He was the perfect God-man to take your place of judgment, to be your penal substitutionary atonement, that your sins were punished in Christ on the cross resulting in the reception of His righteousness to your account. As we read before, His robes for mine, the great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness, where we can stand before God acceptable and pleasing to Him. United in Christ's death and resurrection. Don't continue walking in the way of cursing and death, beating your head against the wall, enslaved to your sin. Repent and believe. You'll receive true freedom. You'll receive a life that you have never had before. And so as Moses told Israel, as God commanded through many of his prophets, Today I set before you life or death. What will you choose? Will you choose death over life? Living a life of cursedness under God's judgment or a life of blessing in fellowship with Him? If you repent, you will have fellowship with God. Or if you're a Christian who's in sin, if you repent, you will have a renewed fellowship with God and He will be for you, blessing your efforts instead of frustrating them. You'll have the blessing of His presence for you, not against you. And that's really the point of the next section, which is the fourth point of our outline. Receive your blessing. If you repent, the blessing you will receive is covenant fellowship with the King of the universe. Look at verses 12 and 13 in Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message 
I am with you, declares the Lord. Yahweh had just finished telling them in the verses previous to this, in 10 and 11, how he was frustrating their efforts by sending plague, drought, blowing away their offerings because he was displeased with them. He was with them before, but operating against them, frustrating all of their efforts, bringing about a curse on them. But now, as they repent, they have a blessing from him. He's now with them to bless them. And it isn't as much an aspect of physical presence as it is the beneficence of God. Yahweh was against them. He was opposed to them, but now he was with them. He was on their side. But again, it's not because Yahweh moved, but because they had moved from, they'd repented from the way of cursing back into the way of life. They had gone from acting as if they weren't his covenant people, they were acting as if they were his enemies, and they repented to act in accordance with his revealed will. But that little phrase, I am with you, would have been extremely encouraging to the people. It's a powerful phrase. Jacob received such a promise. And it's the reason that Joseph was so successful in Egypt. He was held in esteem by everyone because the Lord was with him. Moses was told similar words from the Lord at the burning bush, as well as Joshua when he took over Moses' position. Gideon when he faced the Midianites with only a few men. It was given to David. This promise was given to David when God entered a covenant with him. It was given to Jeremiah at the beginning of his difficult ministry. Just like all of these men before, The promise was that Yahweh would encourage their efforts to ensure the success of the mission instead of discouraging their efforts and frustrating their labors. And we see the effects of Yahweh's presence right after this. Yahweh stirred them up to do the work because they had genuinely repented. Yahweh was now working for them, stirring up their repentance to go to work on the house. But let's look at how it describes their repentance. Because you only receive this blessing if genuine repentance is involved. Wholehearted repentance. So we're going to look at this section, look at this genuine repentance, the different elements of it, so that we can be confident that we have genuinely repented of sin. That God is now with us instead of frustrating our efforts. We are commanded in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, not just part of it. Well, to love God with all of our heart, what does that mean? What does that entail? What makes up loving God with all of our heart? Biblically, the heart is the control center of man. It's often synonymous in Scripture with the mind. But the heart is made up of the intellect, the emotions, and the will. The intellect, emotions, and the will. When the word for heart is used in Scripture in a reference to something more intellectual, the English translations usually render it as mind. And that's actually the same vein of thinking that the translators of the ESV used in the two commands of verse 5 and 7 where it says, consider your ways. The literal Hebrew of those is set your heart on your ways. And what the command is getting at is not just, you know, we think of heart as like feelings, which it is, that's part of it, we're going to get to that, but it's also thinking. 
It wasn't that, they, that Haggai just wanted them to feel bad about what they were doing. He wanted them to think deeply about it, to consider their ways. But the heart is the control center of man made up of the intellect, the emotions, and the will. And we need to make sure that our repentance is wholehearted repentance. But let's look at the intellectual aspect first in verse 12. Go past all the names of the people, all the remnant of the people. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They all obeyed. But what is it that they were obeying? As I was studying this, I was perplexed because it says they obeyed there, but then down later it says then they went up to build the house. So what are they obeying here? What is this obedience a reference to? Well, this is referring to the first command that's repeated twice, to consider your ways. They obeyed the voice of Yahweh through the messenger Haggai when he commanded them to think deeply about their pattern of living and their idolatrous priorities. They obeyed that command and thought deeply about their ways in light of Yahweh as the high king of heaven. They thought about how they had neglected his house and prioritized their own house over his. The fact that they had fashioned an idol and put it above Yahweh. They obeyed and considered their ways. Listen, don't just neglect this part of repentance, thinking about your sin. We have to con- when you have to confront someone in sin, don't assume that they have a right view of God and their sin. You need to make, make them consider their ways. When we are convicted, we need to think deeply about how we have transgressed the law of the holy and glorious King of the universe. We need to think long and hard about the ugliness of our sin in light of who God is. We have to actually think about it. So the first mention of the obedience of the people indicates that they intellectually thought about it, considered deeply their ways in light of who God is, Yahweh of hosts. And this intellectual aspect of the heart led to the second aspect of the heart, the second aspect of wholehearted repentance, and that is the emotional aspect. It says at the end of that verse, at the end of 12, and the people feared the Lord. Their deep thinking about their sin in light of who God is led to a fear of Yahweh. There is an awe and reverence aspect to the fear of the Lord, but we don't want to overlook the actual fearful aspect of the fear of the Lord. When Isaiah appeared before the king on the throne in heaven in Isaiah 6, he said, Woe is me, I am finished, I am done for, for I am a man of unclean lips in the presence of this holy God. He was struck with the fear of the Lord. The reality of who God was, His holiness, His position and glory as King of the heavens, it hit Isaiah like a ton of bricks. And yes, awe and reverence for God is a part of that. It's there, but he falls down in terror because he knows he is worthy of judgment. And Haggai's first message to the people on that feast day, it was designed to get the people to think about the same thing. The greatness and the grandeur and the holiness of Yahweh as the King of Heaven, whose house they had left in ruins. They had set other things above this God. They had every reason to be terrified of judgment. 
They thought deeply about their sin and recognized that. And they feared Yahweh. They put Him back in the right place in their hearts where they were in awe and reverence of Him, yes, but where they feared Him. They knew that they deserved to be destroyed by Yahweh and exiled all over again for their sin. And this emotion of fear, it provokes awe and reverence and even righteous living. But we don't want to ignore the emotional aspect of fear there. And we understand as Christians that there is now, for us who are in Christ, no condemnation. Romans 8.1 We never have to fear final eternal judgment. But listen, every time I sin and I'm brought to repentance, and I'm fearful, and I think, man, I, I deserve to die for that. That's the fear of God. Being struck deeply in your heart that I deserve to be punished for that. And then, as a Christian, I rejoice in God's mercy upon me that He did not strike me down as I deserved. But repentance, it's not just intellectual. It's not just an intellectual assent that what you have done is wrong. And it's not just an emotional reaction. It's not just weeping over sin or the consequence of sin. It is both of those things, but it's not one without the other. And it's also not just both of those things combined. There's, there's a lot of people who think about their sin and they're emotionally distraught about it even. But if it ends there, it's not wholehearted repentance either. One more aspect has to be present to be considered genuine, wholehearted repentance. And that is the will, the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Verse 14 says, They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. The people thought about it. They were struck to the depths of their heart. They feared God. And then they went out and they actually did what they were commanded. They repented and they went out and they built the house. They worked on the house. If you genuinely think about your sin, maybe you're even emotionally upset by it, but it doesn't lead to a change of action, then it's not genuine repentance. And you will not receive the blessing of the Lord being with you. And if you intellectually think about it, maybe make some outward change, but your emotions aren't involved, there's no fear of God, there's no love, there's no joy, Beloved, that's Pharisaism. That's not genuine repentance either. If there's no love, no joy, no fear of God, but you intellectually think about it, it's cold, calculated. Well, I guess if I do this, then you know, I might lose my marriage. If I do this, I might lose my job. That's, that's cold and calculated. There's no fear of God. There's no love of God in that. That's just natural consequences deterring you from sin. That is a grace of God. But it's not genuine repentance on your part. It's not wholehearted repentance. For repentance to be genuine, it has to have all three of those things. A change of mind that leads to a change of action in the fear of the Lord. For these people, God knew their repentance was genuine because God sees the heart. He didn't have to wait for them to act and go up and build the house. He knew it was genuine. 
because He knows the heart. But it is confirmed for them when they, their wills were activated and they went up and built a house and the change was made evident. But genuine repentance has those three elements. But what is encouraging is that when we genuinely repent, when we genuinely have a change of mind, Yahweh blesses that and stirs up a change of action. There is genuine repentance among the people. And so in the midst of that, Yahweh encouraged their repentance by stirring them up to do what He commanded them to do. We see the immediate catalyst of God's presence provoking and promoting the will of man to accomplish the repentance that God started to begin with. God initiated their repentance by sending the prophet and preaching the word to them to affect their hearts. And then we see God right there provoking and promoting their obedience to accomplish the repentance that He had started. Isn't that an encouragement, beloved? As you make the decision to, you think deeply about your sin, in the fear of, the, in the fear of God you commit to change, God's going to energize that and support you in that. He's the power, the catalyst behind that, working out your repentance. He's the instigator and the source of the power for repentance. And it's particularly encouraging for us because as New Testament believers, the Holy Spirit indwells us, permanently indwells us. And this is how He's working in us as well. All those who repent of their sins, they receive the blessing of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. It ought to be a great encouragement to us as we see how this works out inside of people on the pages of Scripture. There was no trite thing God's presence in the Old Testament and we shouldn't take it for granted either. The one who provokes repentance and then empowers it lives in us. And those who are truly believers respond to the Word of God this way when confronted with a sin. A change of mind that leads to a change of action in the fear of the Lord. All because they want to please God and glorify God. But the source is the presence of God. So the presence of God is the blessing that accompanies repentance. And it is then for us as Christians an ongoing blessing of being in right relationship to Yahweh, no longer an enemy, but a friend walking righteously before Him, empowered by Him to do so. And when we as believers are in sin, we have this Spirit working in us to bring about our repentance, to stir our hearts up to do what is right, but we're still responsible to consider our ways, to think deeply about how we have offended Him, to fear Him, and He'll stir up that repentance in our hearts. So you should today consider if your repentance is genuine. Not just as a believer, your initial repentance and putting off sin and turning to God for salvation, but actively as a Christian. Is your repentance genuine? Is it wholehearted repentance? Maybe you heard me challenge you last week to assess your priorities, consider Yahweh and His glory first. Maybe you thought about it, recognize some of your sinful priorities, 
but that's as far as it went. Maybe you even wept over your sin. That's good, your emotions are involved, but did it lead to a change of action? Again, we have to assess our repentance. Genuine repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action in the fear of the Lord. We have to consider our ways. We have to change our ways. And if we truly repent, we will receive the blessing of the Lord's presence working for us, promoting our repentance, not frustrating all of our efforts. So to tie all this together, assess your priorities. Think about how you have not honored and glorified Yahweh as king in your life by the patterns of your life, the way you live. Consider the outcome of those things, how having the wrong priorities has likely led to hardship or the lack of fruit in your life. Think deeply about the connection between those two things and then make a change. Repent. And you will receive the blessing of a restored relationship with Yahweh. No more will He be frustrating your efforts because they are in the path of death, opposed to Him, but He will be with you, encouraging you, and even helping you bringing about your repentance. But don't keep banging your head against the wall trying to figure out how you can have your cake and eat it too. Repent of your sinful ways and be blessed with renewed fellowship with the Lord. To boil it all down to one simple sentence, mentioned this last week, the title of these messages, Set Your Heart Upon Yahweh of Hosts. Fear Him and worship Him with your life as He deserves to be worshipped. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may we never lose the fear of You. May we never take for granted Your presence. May we never take for granted our salvation being cleansed and and positionally before You justified. But may we, every time we sin, understand our sin as a sin against a holy and perfect God. May we understand that Every time we sin, we deserve to die. And yet, because of Your great mercy, You do not give us what we deserve. You withhold that. But may we often reflect upon that that we may never take for granted Your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.